0: Bienvenidos. Welcome to Episode 9 of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous, people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing John Deteishi. John is a former National Executive Director of the Japanese American Citizens League and author of Redress, the Inside Story of the Successful Campaign for Japanese American Reparations. In this episode, we discuss John's root story, spending his formative childhood years as a prisoner at Manzanar, how traditional Japanese cultural values impacted the healing of the Japanese-American community, his role in leading the fight for Japanese-American reparations, and so much more. On a side note, the history of redress is long and complicated. This episode is an abridged version of a -a three-and-a-half-hour interview with John, which will be housed at the Manzanar National Historic Site in the coming months. We invite you to listen to this important history of healing and one that is ongoing with annual pilgrimages to the Soul Consoling Tower at the Manzanar National Historic Site. I hope you enjoy hearing John's story and the way he challenges us to rethink how healing can take place for our communities. Enjoy. It is an honor to be in conversation today with John Tateishi. John was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. At two and a half years old, he was among the 120,000 Japanese Americans who, at the outbreak of World War II, were forced from their homes in the Western states and imprisoned in America's concentration camps. With his family, he was sent to the so-called Manzanar Relocation Center in the Eastern Sierras, one of 10 American concentration camps in which Japanese Americans spent the war as civilian prisoners of their own government without ever having been charged with any crimes. After completing his master's degree and anxious for travel, he and his wife, Carol, moved to London, England, where they both taught and, on academic holidays, donned backpacks and hitchhiked through the continent. Three years later, they returned to the Bay Area where John taught at City College of San Francisco and soon became involved with a redress program at the Japanese American Citizens League, the JACL, the nation's oldest and largest Asian American civil rights organization. In 1978, John spearheaded the JACL's redress effort to seek redress for the U.S. government's wrongful imprisonment of Japanese Americans. In 1981, John left City College to devote himself full-time as JACL's principal redress lobbyist in Washington, D.C., where he worked tirelessly to bring restorative justice and much-needed healing to the Japanese-American community. John's efforts laid the foundation for what became a successful redress campaign that concluded with the passage of H.R. 442, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. Which provided an apology from President Reagan and Congress, as well as monetary compensation to the victims of internment. In 1999, John was asked to return to the JACL as its national executive director to undertake the challenge of shepherding the then 70 year old organization into the new millennium. He is the author of Redress the Inside Story of the Successful Campaign of Japanese American Reparations. Welcome to the podcast, John.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: I am so glad to have you here. And we thought we'd start this episode a little differently because we have a shared story of how we met. So I'm going to start it and we're going to try, right, to tag team the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember that we met in mid-October because I remember that day so clearly because it started at 1230 a.m. for me. I was making my way up to Tumaniguya, a.k.a. Mount Whitney, And I really thought that I would summit by 7 a.m. And by 6 a.m., I realized that's not going to happen for me. (laughs) So I sat on a rock, watched the sunrise. And I remember just having this overwhelming feeling. And I think I told you this in an email where my original plan was to be at Manzanar Sunday, not that Saturday. So when I decided to come back down, I was very at peace with not summiting that day and just thought I really like... I really just wanted to be at Manzanar that day. It was a really strange feeling that came over me. And I always think about that because I think had I not left at that time, I would not have gotten to the historic site by 11 a.m., which is when you were there. And I was on my way to the Japanese gardens because I couldn't read the map the weekend prior to that, which I was at Manzanar as well. And I remember you being very surprised by that, that I, was, I had been there two weekends in a row. And um, I approached you because I saw you in front of Mez Hall. And you looked from afar. I thought, this person knows the land. But I'm going to pass it on to you because you were there for a very specific reason as well.
1: Well, I, you know, I would not have been there, uh, except that I had gone to... Los Angeles to do some filming for a French television station that was doing a documentary about uh, the wartime experiences of Japanese Americans. And so we were in Los Angeles for two days and then drove out to Manzanar. And it was the next morning that we went to, we were in Independence at a motel the night before, drove back to Manzanar that morning. And we were doing filming in some of the barracks, uh, replicas of, of barracks and uh, some of the scenes, especially the, the scene of uh, the mountains, the Sierras behind us. And um, they went off to do some other filming and I had a break for about a half hour. And um, so I thought, well, I wanted to go back to where we had been because I wanted to check something. And I saw this young woman standing there looking, kind of looking lost actually. <laughs> And I remember, if I, if I remember great, you had a map. And I think I may have asked you, or one of us asked about direction. Can I help you with finding something? I, you know, I do know Manzanar because I'd been there a number, and well, I, I grew up there, but uh, after the camp had been uh, restored and, and funds had been put into restoring parts of it as a, uh, an historical site, I had been back to Manzanar Uh, several times to give speeches or to do one thing or another. So I was familiar with the grounds and I thought, well, this is, you know, it's large. It's one square mile. It's easy to get lost or not be able to find things. And I thought, oh, maybe I can help her. But that was the point at which we met.
0: Yes. That was the point because I, I, I think I told you that I had talked to Rosemary Masters, who's one of the park mm-hmm. rangers, and she had explained the map to me. And I still, for the life of me, could not figure this out. And I expressed my interest to you in the Waiuli plant project. And you said to me, you know, the story is in redress, not the plant project. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we we started to engage in conversation. And, um, and by the end of that conversation, I, you kind of oriented me and said, okay, this is where you need to go. And, um, and I said, can I have a business card? And you said, I don't think I have a business card. And you looked in your wallet and you said, this is my last business card. <laughs>
1: It still is my last business card, by the way.
0: (laughs) So in many ways, I think this was just so meant to be. And so, you know, and the rest is history because then we just connected via email and here we are. Yeah. I, I, that story was the highlight of my 2021. Honestly, I came back and I Googled you and, you know, you had just mentioned redress um, just in passing during our conversation. And then when I came back and did research as to who you were and realized that you had written a book and that you were really one of the primary architects of the redress campaign, I was just blown away. And then we started to talk about you being on the podcast. And so thank you so much for making the time.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is really a pleasure for me. Thank you.
0: As John begins to unearth his root story, He shares how the trauma of camp, a generic term used by Japanese Americans to describe the incarceration experience, stayed in his consciousness for decades after leaving Manzanar. In his book, Redress, John writes, I was part of the Sansei generation that was born before World War II and shaped by both the wartime experience and the virulent racism and antipathy of the immediate post-war years. Therefore, John felt a certain kinship with the Nisei generation second-generation Japanese Americans, because they had a shared incarceration experience. Through a gradual unwinding and twisting of fates, John was presented with a choice that would forever change his life and that of the Japanese American community. This is how John's root story begins.
1: I've given that some thought. I I don't know that everyone goes through an experience, uh, an epiphany in their lives to find a new direction. I I know that the things that really kind of guided me always were the camp experience, what happened to us during the war, and later in life as I tried to resolve the issue of what that meant. Having been at Manzanar as a prisoner and all that implied for me as a child and for us as Americans really plagued me. And it's important to understand that the children of the camps, those of us who were there as children born before the war and there were some born in the camps, but the children of the camps had a way to try to resolve the issues, not completely, but what we did was we talked to each other a lot after the war and without realizing what we were doing, we were finding the catharsis for what had happened to us and a way to understand it. And you know, a lot of that came in storytelling, Uh, boasting about, you know, things like some kid would talk about some event that happened at their camp and others would say, oh, you think that was bad, you know, at our camp and things like riots. We had no understanding of of what that really meant and how it traumatized all of us because it was so frightening having uh, soldiers coming through the camps and the jeeps, the trucks and the men running, all the shouting, all the confusion. And so things like that, we didn't understand, and our parents would not tell us what that was about. And so for us as children, we had to find a way to resolve this, because we knew we couldn't talk to our parents, so we talked to each other. And that resolved some of the issues for me, but it stayed in my consciousness for a long time, years, decades. And it wasn't until I got involved with the redress campaign with the JACL that I started to understand some of what that was all about, how it had been a part of my life without my understanding it. But the one decision I made that changed my life completely was during the redress campaign. I was teaching at City College, San Francisco, as you pointed out. And there was a point at which I had to make a decision either continue teaching and leave the campaign because it had become overwhelming. Um, It had succeeded faster and farther than anyone expected. Uh, Certainly farther than I thought we would have gotten by that point in two years. I needed to make that decision. Do I stay with my teaching job with the security and the future and everything else, or take my chances and resign my position, my tenure, and take on this this campaign that was doomed to failure, according to everybody. That one decision to leave teaching and pursue this campaign with the JACL changed everything for me. Changed it changed it all for my family. Their whole lives changed because of that one decision. So you know, as I look back at the question, it wasn't a quick moment, a moment in my life where there was an aha moment. It was more a gradual unwinding and twisting of fates, and bringing me to that moment where I had to make that decision. And it was a fateful decision for me. But you know, in the end, uh, fortunately, it was the right decision. But you know, quite honestly, I don't think I had any any choice in the matter because we're talking about security, financial security, and uh, a future that was. I could visualize, and it wasn't something negative by any means. You know, being in academics is, is a wonderful career. That versus pursuing something that was so difficult and so unsure, nobody knew what we were doing, how we were, most of us, us not knowing. But I don't think I had a choice because it was a matter of the security versus principle. And the principle was so overwhelming that we had to do this. I knew we had to pursue this. And, and I happened to be in the middle of it at that point, leading this campaign. That is the one moment that did change my life. And I, there is something that goes back to when I was a child and my family was leaving Manzanar. My father said to my brothers, I had three older brothers, said to my brothers and me in Japanese, something to the effect of, don't ever forget this place, that this place is part of your memory. If at some point you have an opportunity to make this right, it's your obligation, not to us, not to the family, but to all Japanese Americans. This, this is something you cannot ignore. And he urged us, never forget Manzanar, never forget what happened here.
0: John never forgot his father's words. The Eastern Sierras became a space and place where during his formative childhood years, he attempted to make sense of the complexities of his Japanese-American identity. For John, Manzanar's barbed wire perimeter fence became a symbol between America and the exclusion of Japanese-Americans. As he learned about the Pledge of Allegiance and the ideals of democracy at makeshift schools, he understood that America was somewhere outside of camp. From John's perspective, America was a land where white people held authority and could travel freely without fear or repercussions for being themselves. John continues as he describes the confusion and contradictions he experienced. Ultimately, these experiences laid the foundation for his future activism and involvement with the Redress campaign. You
1: know, our, our block, Block 23, was at the back end of the camp. And we faced Mount Whitney and the Sierras. The front of the camp was a long ways away, you know, one square mile. So it was almost a mile to walk to the front of the camp. The schools, the schoolrooms were in the front. So I was familiar with what was towards the front of the camp. But what struck me always as I I had I started having this consciousness of who we were versus who they, whoever they were, that they were always white, the guards in the towers, Um, the soldiers who came through the camp, who would roam through the camp every now and then, the administrators who would come in and go, and the teachers. The teachers are all volunteers. They were from the American friends, Quakers, who sent teachers all over the country to these different camps to volunteer. The teachers would come, and at the end of the day, school day, they would leave But none of us ever did. We could not leave, and we knew it. And there were times when I would leave my barracks and go up to the front of the camp, walk to the front, and just stand there. In some ways, I I think I was trying to figure out why we were there, because I would spend hours at that fence just standing there looking out. And Highway 395 at the time was this lonely highway. It wasn't the divided highway it is today, you know, paved and all that. It was this lonely highway, two-lane highway, that every now and then a car would go by. And the sound of this car coming down the highway, passing, and going off into the distance really was such a, to me, such a lonesome sound going off to nowhere. But in my mind, that car is going to America because that was out there. That wasn't in here. And I noticed at one point, everybody in those cars is white. It's You know, you never see a Japanese person in there, certainly. So for me, the, the barbed wire became a symbol of the separation between America and who we were. Because, I you know, I was already in school. And so we would do the Pledge of Allegiance. We would hear these wonderful stories about America. And... I kept thinking, but that's not where we are. You know, we're at Manzanar, America is out there. And in fact, one day I was with one of my brothers and I said, I wanna go there. I wanna go to America someday and see what it's like. But I really felt this this desire, almost a, a need, to go in one of those cars, to be in one of those cars and go down that lonely highway to wherever it went, because wherever it was going, it was going to America, somewhere I could never get to. And yet, we were told in school, well, this is America, you know that you have you have all these opportunities that we're fighting for freedom and we're a democracy. All of the all of the things that children learn about living in America, how wonderful it is. But you know, I realized at some early point in my life it's wonderful if you're not like me if you don't look like me because if you're japanese you're here with me and you know i i knew about other camps but this was my world and so for me it was it was very a kind of existential recognition of my life is right there with this highway that separates me from what i'm i'm told i am but i'm not i was I was somebody other than the person the teacher talked about. I was somebody who, by the fact that I looked the way I did, was stuck behind this barbed wire fence. You know, and I've thought about that. Four-year-old kid, five-year-old kid, to understand racism, even in fairly simplistic terms, is a pretty incredulous thing to think about, that kids that young don't usually understand these things. And it's not that I was brilliant or anything. It's just that very fundamentally, knowing that everyone who came and went was white. And everyone who was stuck inside was someone who looked like me. And I understood that as for what it was, maybe not with the term of racism. But boy, it was certainly a, a reality I understood. And I understood it was dangerous to go out there. And I, you know, I was very fearful of America because to me, it represented my destruction if I were to go out there. And so while I longed to see America someday, it was with a sense of fear that I would go down there, you know, thinking I would never come back because the the Nisei men who left and I didn't know they were going off to war. Most of them never came back. And I would know that they were dead by um, the star in the windows of the barracks of of the families. So to me, the idea of America was this abstraction, but something very alluring, but also very dangerous. And I don't know, you know, I don't remember what I felt when we left Manzanar of going to that place, other than very confused about what was happening. But I know, I remember very clearly while we were in that place, while we were in prison at Manzanar, this sense of, of a yearning to go to this land that people talked about, that the teachers talked about, and the pioneers had gone to, and never realizing what that was all about, other than I was only allowed to be where I am because of who I am.
0: Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor sent shockwaves across the United States. In response, President Franklin D. Roosevelt enacted Executive Order 9066, which authorized the imprisonment of all persons deemed a threat to national security. In the wake of Pearl Harbor, all persons met Japanese Americans, as they were deemed a danger to the ideals of American democracy and suspected of holding allegiance to imperialist Japan, the land of their ancestry. The shame and guilt of being incarcerated simply because of their Japanese ancestry led the Japanese American community, especially those of the Nisei generation, to build a wall of silence about their wartime incarceration. John writes, In the long shadow that cast upon them, The Nisei turned to Gaman and sought to heal themselves in silence, but true healing never took place. How could it when we weren't able to even talk among ourselves about what we had experienced when the trauma that results from such an experience is so disabling that we hide in silence, build walls to protect our psyches from the truths of who and what we had become and what we had endured. We were not technically casualties of war, and yet we were wounded. And as a community, we were disabled by our inability to articulate the experience and by our need to hide behind silence. And so I asked John, how did the traditional Japanese cultural values of gaman and shikata ganai impede the Nisei from moving forward in their healing process?
1: You know, there are are certain cultural values in the Japanese community, Japanese American community that are so fundamental to who we are. And, you know, your values are... What shape your behavior? You're guided by your values, and you behave according to to those values. For us, there were fundamental values that you could not ignore because, and especially with the kind of experience we went through, one of them, the view of Japanese of Japanese culturally, is that this idea of stoicism, and it's true, there is a kind of stoicism to being Japanese um, culturally because. We have this word, gaman, which means basically suck it up, just hold it within. Because the, the concept of gaman is don't show your emotions, don't show your discomfort, your pain, whatever is happening to you, because you offend other people. You expose your personal pain to other people, and it's not right to cause them discomfort. So if you smash your finger, your thumb with a hammer, uh, you're going to scream out, obviously. But then once that's over with, then you just endure it. Enduring is an important part of Japanese thinking, Japanese culture. So gaman becomes a fundamental thing that as a child, you grow up learning that something would happen and your mother would be sympathetic and you'd be crying and your father would say, gaman, you don't need to do this. You should be stronger, be strong within. And it comes down to understanding intuitively your center, holding your center together and being able to keep, keep that sense of yourself to yourself and, and don't obligate other people to share whatever it is you're feeling or experiencing. So that was one part of it. And we learned that certainly as children, the gaman. And our parents' generation, the Nisei generation, generation lived by that, that value. But there is this other part, this word shikata which essentially says, very loosely translated, you can't do anything about it, whatever it is. You can't do anything about what's happened. So don't dwell on it. You can't change it. It's already happened. And best you live in the moment and look to the future. It's very Zen in its concept. It's, it's a very philosophical concept. It's fundamental to being Japanese. And so as kids, we learn gaman because there are a lot of difficult things that happened in our lives. And we learn shikata ganai, that there's no sense in complaining. You know, stop whining. You can't change what's happened and you, We know you don't like being here. It's too hot. It's too cold. The snow is bitter. The heat is killing. But shikata ganai, we can't do anything about it. So learn to cope with it and learn to deal with it. It's a very Zen concept that I've always felt helped us get through the, the whole experience of the incarceration, being forced from our homes never getting a hearing, never having trials, just suddenly uprooted and put into these prisons, just bewildered by the whole thing and not understanding why this was happening to us until we realized it's because we're Japanese. This is totally a uh, race-driven action by the the government. It was a national policy. There was nothing we could do. There were 120,000 Japanese Americans. We were dealing with the United States Army and local law enforcement wherever we lived. And so, you know, it truly was shikata You can't do anything about it. They're saying you have to leave. We had to leave. They put us into these prisons. So we lived by that value and made the best of what we had. As bad as it might have been in terms of conditions and uh, the climate and everything else this represented, our imprisonment, We learned to cope with that. It got us through those three, four years. And then we returned to wherever we wanted to go after the war was over. Suddenly we weren't a threat to America. So we could move back to wherever we had come from or move anywhere. And in the years after the war, shikata ganai became the functional sense of our lives as having experienced these prisons, because what happened as we returned to our homes was the fact that we had been put in prison confirmed in the minds of the public that we were indeed traitors to the United States. I mean, because in America, we don't imprison people unless there's a reason, right? And so the government said we had to do it because we couldn't be sure who among them might be saboteurs or whatever, never having evidence of anything. And the reality was it was all race driven. Uh, it was a racist policy and they tried, the government tried to justify it. So as we returned from the camps, we lived again by that value of shikata ganai. Things were bad. There was a lot of anger and hatred against us and directed at often at those of us who were children. And we were not wanted, but we were determined, this is where our homes would be, wherever it was we chose to come back to. And again, it was gaman and shikata kanai. For us as children, we talked about camp. We could not not talk about it because it was the only way we could figure out what this was all about. It's what gave meaning for us of that experience. The adults, on the other hand, with a sense of shame about having been labeled traitors, turned inward, this was the gaman in them that became overpowering. They would not talk about camp, and it was indeed shikata kanai. They would not expose anything. And so it became something almost extreme where husband and wife never talked about it. It's as if these three years were blank, And there was a a kind of amnesia, like we won't discuss it. It was too painful to talk about what we had allowed to have been done to us and what we became in the process because we had allowed this. And so there was a a sense of shame and the pain of living with the accusation of being traitors to the only country we knew. And what worse... Accusation could be leveled against somebody than being a traitor in time of war. And so, Japanese Americans, you know, they, they say we're cliquish. Well, we sought protection with each other. And um, we were segregated. And we, you know, for us, there was, in a, in, in a way, a sense of survival. We had to get through these difficult years, terrible years after the war, and live with this label of betraying. Our country, when we had done nothing, the country had betrayed us, but we couldn't say that. And so what happened was there was a wall of silence that the Nisei inadvertently built up around this experience. They wouldn't talk about it. And as kids, we would sometimes say something to an elder about camp. And they would just, in Japanese sometimes, often in English, uh, tell us, you know, basically just shut up. This is not for conversation or discussion. So we understood that the conversation of, about camp was only among ourselves, but not with the adults. And so the Nisei more and more entrenched themselves in this silence as a kind of protection. And it reached a point where they could not even think about camp. It was too painful you know, to think that I had allowed this of myself and remember those, those moments in camp where they, had, they would lay, be laying in bed thinking about how could this happen to us? And the, the alienation that it created within their psyches of who they are as a people, as a very proud people, and what they had allowed. And so over the years, from the moment we left those camps they turned to silence as the only way they could deal with it. And, you know, it was repression. It was a kind of defensive, protective mechanism, but to the point that it was so detrimental to them that they could no longer even think about camp without the pain of it. And so as they started having children after the war, say from about 1948, 49 through the 50s, they never told their kids about this. They never talked about it. And their kids never heard about it in the community. It was, it was a non-subject. And so their kids would go off to college and hear about this experience of Japanese Americans being in these prisons and wonder what that was all about because they knew nothing about it. But you know, I, having grown up in a camp, having understood that I was there because, I, and, you know, at a very early age, I understood that the only reason we were there was because we were Japanese. After the war ended and we returned to the West Coast, it wasn't that we as children uh, could resolve everything because we couldn't talk to anyone other than our own friends among ourselves about the experience. We had friends who were Mexican who lived in our community. We had friends who were white. Uh, who with whom we went to school. if any of them came to if we're sitting around talking and one of them would come and say, "What are you guys talking about?" we would never talk about it. We could not tell them about what we had experienced because in the way our parents felt the shame of having been prisoners, we too felt that. It was embarrassing. it was it was a sense of I'm less than who this person is because, I was in a prison. And you think about children having to, having to resolve that kind of a, a framework of, of a sense of self, it creates a lot of internal conflict, you know, the anger, the frustration, all of that, sometimes against their parents, sometimes against each other. But for us, because we went through that experience, we could understand the Nisei. We were very different as a part of the Sansei generation having experienced the war years than those who came later who were very angry at us for not being more courageous, not standing up, not resisting, doing all the things by the 1960s people talked about. And there was no way we could have done that. So for, for someone like me, uh, once I got involved with the redress campaign, I would I would sometimes face younger Japanese American audiences, college kids, who were just, you could sense the, the fury coming out of them and the kind of anger about, and a sense of shame about their parents. And I would try to explain to them what that was all about. And I felt that I, I could kind of bridge that, that separation because I knew what it was on that other side what it was like to be within barbed wire fences and have guards up guard towers with soldiers looking down on you with rifles. That sense of fear, that sense of guilt, whatever it was. And I would try to explain to them that you're angry at the wrong people. Your parents did the only thing they could do and that it's the government you need to start looking at. It was the government that did this to us. And uh, it became a very complex issue within the Japanese American community. And it was really important that we find a way to resolve it. But the problem was that the Nisei would not and could not talk about their wartime experience to the degree that some of them had, a, a large number of them had actually served in the United States Army during the war, fought in Europe. Some went to the Pacific and they served this country in uniform during the war, a lot of them lost their lives and still they could not deal with it. They wouldn't talk about that. We had heroes living among us who we had no idea what they had done, what they had endured. Um, There was a man I knew, I knew his son, his son who said to me one day, you know, my dad won the Medal of Honor. He was given the Medal of Honor for the war. He said hell i didn't even know he was in the army i didn't know he was in a camp and when this kid told me this i it it just really hit me just how deeply that silence had to have gone in his parents mind Uh, because here was a a a man and you know and i went to a the ceremony at the white house where all these you there were 20 japanese american soldiers whose Distinguished Servants Cross medals were upgraded to uh, medals of honor. And I, I saw this man up there, and I didn't know him well, but I knew him. And uh, this little guy, he's five feet tall, maybe weighs 125 pounds, absolutely soaked. And the, the kinds of things he did during the war, and I think that little guy did that much. I mean, this guy was, he was incredible. So his son, who was there, I had very mixed emotions about this. Mainly, why didn't I ever know about this? My father is old and he's going to die soon. And for him, it was this sense that I've lost all these years of honoring him. And I pointed out, well, remember, there were about 10 years where you were angry at him. You need to make up for that 10 years. Forget the other parts of it. He chose the other part. But, you know, this this became a really difficult issue for us in the community. There are so many different parts of that redress campaign that had to be sorted and resolved and the conflicts somehow brought together so that we can move forward. It was constantly trying to move this issue forward, but a lot of it had to do with who we were as a people, what our culture taught us and how it got us through things, but how it also became an impediment to be, are being able to move more quickly or move more easily into the part of the campaigns that we needed to
0: head towards. The redress campaign was critical to bringing much-needed healing to the Japanese-American community. As John outlines in his book, he was a person who formulated the public affairs and initial legislative strategies for the redress campaign. From the outset, the Japanese-American community was divided. The idea of demanding restitution for the wrongful imprisonment was unpopular, as some believed that asking for reparations was a violation of deeply held cultural values. Meanwhile, the Japanese Citizens League was torn between moving forward with a redress campaign that could potentially bring dishonor to the community, yet was fully aware that fighting this legislatively was the only way to impede the United States from doing this to any group of people in the future. As John continues, he lays out the differences between reparations and redress, how the Black civil rights movement influenced Japanese Americans, and how media became a critical component of the redress strategy.
1: The definition of reparations is some kind of restitution, monetary restitution, monetary compensation for something done that was deemed improper, wrong, immoral, whatever. And usually through the courts, this is common in uh, in the judicial system in this country, you sue people for money for damage, and um, that is monetary restitution. That's reparations in a political term. You're you're trying to get money for a wrong committed. Redress has a much broader sense or a broader definition of rectifying the wrong, which could include reparations, but it's a way to undo the damage or to try to undo the damage by finding ways to resolve the issues that are created by the wrong that was committed. So the idea of redress is to address the policy or the action or the attitudes that are created by it and to reinform those things, to change them, to create lasting change. And so the discussion within the JECL started as reparations, because that's what the young street activists were talking about, Japanese Americans, that we need reparations for the wrong. And so it was introduced as a reparations issue, but talked about in a much broader sense of finding a solution or finding a way to resolve this issue so that it would never occur again to any group of people in the United States and it was framed in constitutional language. You look at the Bill of Rights and all the articles of the Bill of Rights, all of them were ignored. And so all the protections afforded to Americans or anyone here legally, and even those who aren't here with papers, they are provided these guarantees of protection, You know, due process, freedom of speech, all of these, which were ignored in our case. And so the JSL was talking about it in terms of preventing this from happening again to any group of people. There was an altruistic goal to what we were talking about. You know, one of the things that, that was, um, as I look back on this, that was fascinating is that we had no way to understand how this kind of an issue could evolve in the public mainstream. The civil rights movement gave us The sense that we needed to, if we were going to do anything, it would be only because we demanded it. That in this country, if you want equality, you have to fight for it. Or if you want justice, it's never going to be given to you because people feel sorry for you. Because they don't. They may sympathize, but they don't really want to do anything about it. That's the real lesson we learned from, I learned from the civil rights movement. If you fight hard enough, you believe in the principle enough, that you can start to make change. I mean, it was a social revolution, an incredible thing to experience. So here we were 10 years after the signing of the civil rights law, both the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and talking about a demand for reparations. What I knew from my experience growing up and after I began teaching at City College, I would talk about Uh, I would say to my colleagues, I I didn't very often talk about this in my classes, but I would say to my colleagues, well, you know about the World War II experience of Japanese Americans. I I was one of them. And there would be this blank look in their eyes and, and people saying, what are you talking about? Especially those who came from the East Coast. So I would explain to them what happened to us. And they were appalled. They were shocked. But I knew from earlier experience that The public didn't know anything about what happened to us because every now and then there would be something mentioned somewhere, some vague mention, and it would be skipped over because people didn't recognize that this was anything significant. So as I began exploring the media in the Bay Area, and keep in mind, this is the most liberal part of the country. This this area always votes the most progressive, the most liberal. So you know, it's it's the most um, open-minded about experience in America. R- what really struck me about the media in the Bay Area was not the fact that they didn't want to run anything about us; they didn't know anything about us. And the only thing the media ever ran were about the gang wars in Chinatown, or about the U.S.-Japan trade relations and the trade wars. And how Japan was really being unfair, creating this anti-Japanese sentiment across the country. For us, it was th- the problem was that no one knew what happened to us. And most of the people who knew didn't care. And a lot of them thought, well, they should have done more to you. I mean, you know, nothing happened to you. You just were put in prison and then you're allowed to return. The difference between the civil rights movement and what we were attempting to do was. The civil rights movement was an effort to change society, change societal thinking, to try to address these these issues of racism in a very, very profound way. It wasn't an attempt to get reparations at all. It was to get recognition of the racism and the injustice and the lasting injustice being committed to Black people in the United States. Our situation, and everybody knew about it. uh, about slavery as an issue. The problem for us is nobody knew about our experience during World War II. And so I saw this as the first obstacle we would have to overcome. We would have to inform the public and get the public to start to debate it. Even if they accused us and uh, saw us in a very negative light, it would at least start the debate.
0: On behalf of the Japanese American Citizens League, John moved the debate forward by writing op-eds, press releases, and going on radio and television talk shows. For years, John relentlessly educated the American public about the injustices committed against Japanese Americans. Slowly but surely, the story of America's concentration camps went from being local news to national news. As we continue, I asked John, How did seeking redress through a federal commission investigation afford the Nisei and the larger Japanese-American community the opportunity to start the healing process through public testimony?
1: You know, I would love to say that I had the foresight to understand that having the Nisei testify would serve a healing process. I didn't know that. I felt that they needed to talk. They needed to break the silence. I mean, I understood that as a... As a, a sansei who went through the camp experience, as I got older, I found myself digesting the experience, the psychological impact of that on myself, and realized that there were a lot of unresolved issues for me. And you know, and I'm one of those people who had no fear or reservation even of about talking about the war years and what happened and what we experienced. And I and I understood that the nisei needed to have some of that catharsis, some of that release of guilt and the sense of their own shame. Having grown up in the shadow of the Nisei after the war, I understood that they would never ever break that silence, that they would take this to their graves with them. At the same time, as the head of, as I took over the national campaign for the JSL, and started shaping what this would become. The mechanism that we would use was a federal commission that would hold hearings. And the only reason I agreed to, well, not the only, but the major reason, I agreed to accept that strategy, which was suggested to us by Daniel Inouye. He recommended this commission idea as he talked about the function of a commission what we could accomplish with it when he said and you could hold public hearings in places like Los Angeles San Francisco Seattle you know wherever Japanese Americans live i just suddenly saw this as the avenue that we would need to pursue because not only would this commission give us a an official government report outlining why it was an injustice but it would also give recommendations but it would hold those public hearings um, to me, it was the, the one thing we needed more than anything else, but it was the one thing that would fail miserably without the Nisei speaking. So it was a really risky strategy. It was very controversial when we, the JACL, announced that this was our strategy. This was what we were going to pursue. We were accused of all kinds of things, but I knew I was absolutely convinced this was the only way we would win this fight. And it was the only way the Nisei would find a voice, hopefully. And it was interesting because the initial reaction of a lot of the Nisei, both within the JACL, and keep in mind, you know, we had been debating this in the JACL for years. Uh, the Nisei in the JACL and in the public, that, that is the community, were really angry that we, that I was leading us in that direction, that they would have to testify and said they won't do it. They refuse to. And it's none of their damn business what we went through. You know, this is Shikata Ganai at the, at the extreme. And, but, but what happened was as the commission evolved and got organized and we worked out a schedule and we announced what that schedule was for the hearings, and this is now 1981 where this is going to happen. Suddenly, the Nisei realized this was their only opportunity. They were getting old, and they would not have another chance to tell their story. And so then they wanted to testify. In fact, demanded they be allowed to testify. There are only so many days, so many hours in a day where these hearings could be held. So it was three days in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle, and, and Chicago. And they, the commission said, okay, they could only take so many witnesses, and uh, we, we worked out the type of witnesses we wanted to hear from. And basically, to try to draw a picture of, of all the experiences that we went through, also had experts, doctors, who psychologists, sociologists, and professors who were from other fields who could talk. Provide their expertise about impact, but it was mainly the the personal stories that were I thought were, would be the most important. And so w- the commission began its hearings in Los Angeles, and the Nisei were there to testify and tell their stories for the first time. The Nisei finally realized that this was important for them personally to be able to tell their stories. And you have to keep in mind that this is before the '90s when truth and reconciliation commissions were established in the, in the aftermath of apartheid. None of that had ever happened before. And so I'd like to say that I understood, you know, that truth-telling would be really important. I did understand that storytelling would be. My concern as they agreed to testify and, and in fact demanded that they be allowed to testify, my concern was how far would they go I had already experienced some of this in a book that I published, uh, Oral Histories, where I had gone around the country and interviewed a a number of people, over 100 people, to get 30 stories that would be published as stories that typified the the experience of the incarceration. In that, it was one-on-one. I had a, a recorder. It was mainly the person and me talking, and my trying to get answers that they didn't want to give and to take them into a place where it was so painful for them. And, you know, I mean, I felt really horrible doing it, but I, I knew that's where the story was. And so I kept pushing that as I did these interviews. I, so I knew what that would be like and didn't really, I I wasn't absolutely sure that they would, the Nisei, as they testified one after another would go that far So I attended all the hearings and listened to all the testimony and was both horrified and gratified that the Nisei actually went to that dark place in their hearts. And there were, I would guess, there were 725 Nisei testimonies, many of them men. And it's the only time in my life I had ever seen Nisei men cry. This, this idea of stoicism, this idea of gaman was so strong that they would endure so much and never show that emotion. But in the commission hearings, one after another, got up there and talked about his own personal extor- story, and invariably they would break down. They would start crying. It never occurred to me because I, I just couldn't get away from the emotion of, of all of it that this was the catharsis they had never been given, that they never found for themselves. But to me, it was more about the truth, that they were telling the stories about what that life was like from 1942 when we left the West Coast. They were telling stories that no one had ever heard before. Many of them, none of us had ever heard It's remarkable as I look back on that whole experience, how much those three, six, nine, 12 days of personal testimonies, how much they changed the community. It was a different community. So you talk about healing. What I learned is you can't heal until you face the truth of what this has been, until you face the pain and you have to drive yourself through it or you have to cope with it somehow. And it's only as you're able to deal with that which is causing so much of your pain and, and to find the wound within yourself that you can begin to start to heal. It takes years sometimes. Sometimes I would see people who testified a week or two later who seemed like different people who somehow stood taller, straighter, who had, who had a cloud lifted from over their heads, who became in some ways different people because of this. They were the lifeblood of the Redress campaign. It would not have worked without their voice. And I realized as we were doing all of this, what kind of courage it took for them to break down that silence and to expose themselves. And I don't know, it it was just, for me, it was a remarkable experience.
0: All of John's gifts and talents were beautifully interconnected in the making of a successful redress campaign that would guide the Japanese American community towards healing intergenerational trauma. I say this while fully acknowledging that the healing process is ongoing for some Nisei who are still with us today. John's healing nature is rooted in his living memory of the camp experience. This experience gave him the fuel to drive his activism and the ability to establish a bridge of understanding between the Sansei and Nisei generations. However, it is also clear to me that through his activism, John was attempting to work through his own unresolved feelings. So I asked John, at what point did you realize that your activism was an extension of your trauma?
1: Quite honestly, I had no idea that I had this need to process the experience. I thought of myself as pretty aware of what's going on with me internally and who I am and what I am. Uh, I try to fool myself, obviously, at times, but I really didn't understand that this was something I needed to process personally. I was an English major. And one thing you do, you know, in the way musicians need to write songs and, and play the songs and express what they're feeling. But when you're an English major, you, you choose that that discipline because you like language, you like the way language expresses certain things. And so writing to me was always a natural thing. I mean, it's what I would turn to often. And at one point I started writing a lot of poetry. My wife saw some of it and she pointed out to me something that I didn't even realize I was doing, which was, she said, you know, there's this image that shows up in your poems and it's like a tower and i i was stunned by what she told me then i started writing more specifically about the camp experience everything i wrote was just really angry and at one point i said to my wife i need to go to manzanar i had not been since i was a kid and she said oh okay i'll pack up the kids and you know when do you want to leave and i said now I need to go by myself. And so I drove down there and I got there late in the afternoon and I stayed down there for a couple of days. And that experience really, really resolved something in my mind about the anger that I, I, what I started realizing was I wasn't sure who I was angry at anymore. Certainly not my parents. A lot of it towards the government for what it had done, but a lot of it towards Mainstream America, for the way they saw me and those of us who were in the camp, and how they cared so little about those who didn't look like them, those who weren't white, those who weren't, weren't part of mainstream America, and that suffering meant nothing. When I got involved with the redress campaign, I did so because I felt a need for us to face this issue. And quite honestly, in my mind, always. Camp was about the Nisei. It was always about what they had to go through and what they sacrificed for us, the Sansei, to protect us and then after the war to give us a life that we had. And we had a much better life than they did. Um, we didn't have the struggles that they did. And you know, this is a, a generational thing, but they protected us psychologically also from what we had gone through and what that whole experience had meant to us and about us. So as I started my involvement with the JSL and with, with the, the campaign and my role in it, I constantly found myself having to, to work out certain parts of the emotion I felt and what we were doing, not to let the anger become the thing that would drive a decision ever. And I became much more political in the way I looked at what we were experiencing now versus the thing that made us experience it. And to have to take all the the cultural conflicts that we were creating for ourselves um, or that had been the thing that had, had stood in our way, but had been the things that had given us the strength to experience all of this and now became an impediment. And how do you bring all this together, all this turmoil within the the soul of Japanese America to codify it in a way where people can accept, that is, us accept what it was we were trying to do, that this, in fact, did not shame us, that it was a way to drive us forward in finding our own voice and, in a sense, doing what we did when we went into those camps, which was to prove to America that we were American. And in fact, that we were probably better Americans than most of them. I mean, there was a sense that, that, you know, this is our strength and we're going to show it to the country. But for me, it was, it started with this need to articulate what the experience was personally. What I was experiencing in the turmoil I felt once we came back to the United States from England which to me, you know, it was three years in England, total separation from the American part of me. And I loved being in England. I loved being in Europe. But I felt also a need to come back to this because this was unresolved. Our son was born in England and we waited till he was born so he could have British papers because we had friends who had left the country because of the draft. And I didn't want our kids to have to go through that kind of a moral dilemma. And so we waited till Stephen was born. We had British papers for him return, but we returned because we needed for us, my wife and I, to get back to what it meant to be Japanese-American. We wanted our son to understand it. We wanted our kids to understand what that means because it was so important to us. But for me personally, what it did was it started to conjure up all those things that I had carried in all those years growing up in America and being part of all the conflicts that, that we were experiencing as Japanese Americans. And apart from all of that were those three years of a kind of psychological freedom. But coming back to it, I immediately started to feel that again. And so when the opportunity came for me to get involved with the Redress campaign within the J-Cell, I welcomed it because it was a way to further the resolutions that I think we all needed.
0: The Redress campaign ended successfully when President Reagan signed into law HR 442, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 which cited racial prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a lack of political leadership as causes for the incarceration of 120,000 Japanese Americans. At the beginning of the campaign, John was solely focused on reparations because he believed that words could only heal so much. He genuinely thought that words are cheap and apologies from politicians are meaningless. However, his perspective evolved over time. As we close out, John goes on to share his thoughts on the importance of apologies in the healing process of the Japanese-American community.
1: I, along with a lot of other people, felt that apologies are cheap. If all we wanted was an apology, we could go to the Congress and the next day have an apology, a nice nice kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of a plaque or something that says, we're sorry, we apologize. It would be meaningless because nobody would know. And... It's too easy and the only thing that would make the campaign have any kind of meaning was if we demanded monetary compensation that <clears throat> excuse me that was however the one stumbling block that could possibly kill this within the Japanese community because as a culture we do not ask for help ever. That's not in the nature of the community. it's not part of our value system. We struggle we, we make our own lives. And so demanding money was such an American thing, and, and but very foreign to us as a culture, as a, a subculture of America. If you look, for example, at the court records before 1970, you would very rarely see a Japanese name, Japanese-American name, suing somebody for whatever it was. And it was a rare occasion that that would happen we certainly would not ever sue each other. That's not done. That's not what we do. It it is now, but it wasn't in those days. So the idea of demanding money was, was so antithetical to who we are as a people. But I was absolutely convinced that until we demanded money, this campaign would never evolve beyond a conversation within our four walls. And so we adopted the JSA adopted that resolution to say $25,000 and the trust fund, but eliminated the issue, the question of apology, because we all said, if those three things are on there, what we'll get is the apology, and the other two would be wiped off. So we said, we're going to force the, the Congress to face the issue. That was the launching point of the campaign. I took those, that resolution and those two items put it into a press release and sent it to every major media outlet with a reaction of shock and horror of these newspaper editors saying, who are these people? Who do they think they are to demand this kind of money? And what are they talking about? And what they're demanding is unreasonable. And as expected, all the reactions were negative. Well, that was fine because I expected that. And I I welcome that because that gave us the platform for debate. A couple of years later, we had a, a commission bill where we outlined what we wanted. And uh, we in that, we included the apology. We, meaning the four Japanese American members of Congress, with some consultation with us, with me, uh, about what would be acceptable to the JACL. We put apology back in there because... That was what they suggested. I didn't want it. I said, our resolution is the money. Until Danny Noah called me one day and asked to meet with me. And he said, I understand this is what you're doing. And he said, the apology is the most important thing. You need to have them put the apology first. I don't very, in, in my dealings with Inouye, I did not very often defy him or tell him he was full of crap. But I did on that rare occasion. And I said, Senator, you're a politician. And uh, forgive me for telling you, for saying this, but you know politicians lie all the time. You can say, I'm sorry today, and tomorrow do the same thing over again. And it's not worth the words uh, that it's written on and the, and the paper that comes with it. And he said, and we got into a fairly heated argument about this. Uh, which ended with me leaving because he told me to leave and he wanted me to think about it. and overnight I thought about I lost a lot of sleep on this one and I kept thinking about, what does this mean? Why the apology first? And it really struck me sometime early in the morning. So the next day I went to see him and I said, you know, I, I do apologize for uh, being so untoward as a lobbyist. And I said, but I, I understand what you're saying and what he was saying, was that the apology would not be done lightly. If if it comes with a demand for monetary compensation, the apology would have to be taken very, very seriously. And it had to be the first item because that's what the Congress needed to do before anything was apologize. And that was what would win the fight for us. That was how I, I switched my strategy as I lobbied the commissioners. And to some of them, I you know, I apologized and said, you're right, the apology should come first. And so that was the position the JSL took was the apology was first and then the money. As it turns out, I wasn't there at the end of the campaign. I left before the, the last two years were over. And the, but the JSL played a really significant role in getting the bill passed, was the mover of that legislation. The way the bill passed was it had, the language of the commission, it had the recommendations as apology, money, and trust fund. And as I lobbied that in the Congress, the money would always come up. And I would say to any member of Congress who found it uh, objectionable that this is not for us. The fact that the apology is first is an indication that what we're trying to do is not to absolve the Congress of its guilt or of the Uh, its actions so many years earlier, but to provide a measure that in the future would prevent this from happening again. And the only way we can do that is if the Congress is willing to apologize and acknowledge that it was wrong. For the Nisei, who are the ones who would benefit from this, it's a recognition and a vindication of who they are as Americans. And I said, I guarantee you, the Nisei will give that money away to churches, to charities, to nonprofits. They'll put them into trust fund, educational trust funds for the grandkids. They're not going to keep the money. It's a letter that would be important. And as it happened, Ronald Reagan signed the bill. Congress approved it, which was phenomenal because it had never done this before. First time in history that a reparations bill of this magnitude was ever passed by the Congress. But it was the recognition by that apology. And then Ronald Reagan signed the bill, and it took three years for this to be implemented from where the first checks started going out. By then, George Bush Sr. was the president. And so the the letter went out with his signature. As I had said so many times, and I, I did believe it, that the money didn't matter, that it was the apology. And as I would go to people's homes and, you know, Japanese Americans, Niseis, uh, and go to visit them. The first thing I would see on the wall in their living rooms was that letter of apology. As they read that letter, it was the first time in their whole experience since World War II that there was a recognition of the injustice, that they were, in a sense, being welcomed back into the fold of being an American and being recognized for what they had sacrificed for this country. And the Nisei really relished that letter. That letter became so important. Everyone who got a letter kept it. And a majority of the Nisei framed the letter, and it's, it sat in their living rooms or where they could see it always.
0: Before signing off, John leaves us with words of wisdom to help us on our journeys to learn, unlearn, and relearn how to center healing in our lives.
1: The lesson I've learned is that it takes so much courage to face to face pain and to face the truths of your life. But it's really important to be able to do that at some point, because until you do, you can't really heal. Healing is so important because Without it, you can't move forward. Whatever it is that, whatever that pain is or whatever that truth is that that you're trying to avoid. And sometimes you avoid it of necessity. It's your survival to avoid it. If there's a point at which you can face it, do so. And it's going to take a lot of courage on your part. And if you can find some way to get the catharsis from what that's all about, you'll be happy. You'll be happier in the end. But it'll relieve certain parts of of that which has dragged you along for so long, and you know we're we're each of us so complex. If we didn't have brains, we wouldn't have to go through all this, but we do. And pain is part of all of it. They say you grow from pain, but boy, who needs it? You know, it's it's. But it's something that's really important. That if you, if you do have those wounds, and I'm not talking about the physical wounds, but the the wounds that are deep inside you, in your heart. Find the courage to face it at some point. And I think you'll find that it's a journey that you should have taken long before.
0: Thank you so much, John. It's been such a pleasure. Oh,
1: you're welcome. I'm so happy to talk to you.
0: And I know that you're so humble about this, but you were doing restorative justice before it's time, truth and reconciliation before it's time in many ways. You were just by choosing to do a federal commission of investigation, really kind of opening the opportunity for trauma-based storytelling. I know that you may not see it that way, but I think that people going through that process of writing their testimonies was very much about that. It was shifting or reframing, right? What's wrong with you to what happened to you Mm -hmm. and sharing that with the entire world. And so I just want to thank you for just being a truth teller. It brought such a different perspective to me about the process of healing for different communities and how culturally based it is.
1: You know, I I have thought about that day at Manzanar and I've often said to people, I have really good karma and I've thought about that day and I thought it was at work with you. You know, I mean, karma becomes such a cliched word in this country and uh, I, I don't like using it. But I use it in the sense that my grandfather taught me karma, Mm -hmm. that it was a moment waiting to happen. And there you were. And God bless you for being there.
0: I think that we can close out by saying that we're both grateful for each other's presence that day.
1: I think we're both fortunate. Yes, we are. Thank you. I really do appreciate it.
0: The story of the Japanese American community and the redress campaign reminds me of a quote by the purandera and national best-selling author Elena Avila, who once said that sometimes the longest journey we take is the 16 inches from our head to our heart. The journey to seeking redress was a long one. For 18 years, John debated and educated the American public as he strategically laid the foundation for the long, arduous healing journey ahead but for the Nisei, the road to breaking their silence was even longer. There was a span of 35 years from the closing of the last internment camp to the federal commission investigation hearings that took place in 1981. Minagados Phillips, author of Cracking the Healer's Code, a prescription for healing racism and finding wholeness, argues that healing doesn't take long, but preparing to be healed, accepting you can heal, And being able to trust that you are healed is what takes time. She believes that to heal from racism, we need to understand we don't know what we don't know. It is about putting new knowledge and awareness in the place of old ideas. It is about gaining information that helps us understand the conditions that led to internalized racial conditioning and gives us tools for transformation, healing, and accessing wholeness. In many ways, John's work with the Japanese American Citizens League did just that. The years he spent fine-tuning his media strategy at the local level led him to masterfully craft a compelling story that eventually reached a national audience and the nation's highest office. Unbeknownst to him, this is how he started to prepare the collective Japanese-American community for the healing that was yet to come through the Federal Commission investigation. Despite deeply held cultural values, the Nisei found the courage to come forward and give voice to the trauma they experienced at the camps and in the post-war years. They broke their silence through public testimony for the world to witness, thereby transcending the barbed wire fence. So many of us recreate and find healing in the Eastern Sierras, but do we truly take the time to listen to the stories held by the land and by those that came before us? Do we truly connect In honor of my serendipitous connection with John on Northern Paiute and Western Shoshone land, and in the spirit of Japanese American activism, I leave you with Yuri Kochiyama's words. Unless we know ourselves and our history and other people in their history, there's really no way that we can really have a positive kind of interaction where there's real understanding. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Redress campaign, I highly recommend John Tateishi's book, Redress, the inside story of the successful campaign for Japanese American reparations. You can purchase it directly from Heyday Books. Link is in the show notes. In the coming months, my full-length podcast interview will be housed at the Manstar National Historic Site Archives. If you'd like to learn more, John and I invite you to check it out. A big thank you to Rosemary Masters, Sarah Bone, and Patricia Briggs at the Manzanar National Historic Site for their assistance and guidance at various stages of this episode. In the show notes, you will also find John's website and resources to learn more about this important part of American history. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore yourhealingnature or email us at info at com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors and or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine. Every day I'm
1: walking in sunshine Every on the